coming to the garden ward, for the blackbird night has flown. Coming to the garden ward, I am here at the gate alone. I am here at the gate alone. And the woodbine spices are wafted abroad, and the mask of the roses blow. Lovely music fading away there. That is, of course, coming to the garden mord, a setting of a little bit from Tennyson's famous poem Maud, one of the less maudlin bits of Maud, in fact. And I play that because Tennyson features fairly heavily in this episode. One of our guests is restoring a garden that Tennyson lived in for over 40 years, a garden that reputedly was bought using some of the profits from his first collection as Poet Laureate, which included Maud and other songs. I don't know if you could hear, but the lines after the black bat night has flown were, um, and the woodbine spices are wafted abroad and the musk of the rose is blown. And we really get a sense of that same spirit of, of romantic disorder, scented solitude from Ellen, the, the gardener, down at Farringford on the Isle of Wight today. The other guests in Dear Gardener, for those who haven't listened before, we weave together the voices of three different gardeners from around the world each week. The other gardeners joining Ellen, one hails from Brisbane on the east coast of Australia and is engaged in a battle with the local wildlife to create a fascinating dry rainforest garden. Gardened, it seemed, with all the exuberance, chaos and cramming of a rainforest that had generated itself. It's a really, really interesting interview with with Patrick over there. And finally, to complete the triumvirate of interesting voices, we have Zara, who is in the enviable position of being the beekeeper at RHS Rosemore, down in the West Country, down in North Devon. I talked to her about the art of beekeeping, the attractions it holds, and the interesting and fairly unique challenges of keeping hives in a public garden. It's all wonderful stuff and a lot of it today, so we will get on with it quite quickly. I want to apologise for anyone who was listening out for an episode last week. After its initial run, the Dear Garden podcast has now settled into a fortnightly rhythm, so we will have Dear Gardeners appearing every two weeks and the occasional little bonus episode just featuring me talking about life and plants and the intersection between the two. Not much news from me. I will say that I went back to London to the big party in the Savoy Hotel and I was named as the Garden Media Guild Journalist of the Year 2022. It is very unexpected, but I'm very, very happy to take it. Anyway, I'll be back to talk a little more at the end. Until then, let's hear from Zara, Helen and Patrick. Times are getting tough and the folks are cutting down. They even decide to do their own gardening. Their own gardening. Take my advice and not go off for a while. The happiness boys are on a rampage. Fred has helped me to start a small Pelagonia nursery, yes? Hi, Ben. Hi, Sarah. Great to see you. 
Hello. <laughs> Hi, Ben. Oh, look, you've got a you've got a special sound baffle behind you. Good on you. It looks awful, doesn't it? It looks like I've made myself a duvet fort, which actually I have done. It makes it look like you're in a closet about to say to everyone that we need to leave Brittany alone. <laughs> Hello. Great to see you. Gosh, your surroundings are much nicer than mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's quite nice being at home. So do you live on site with a garden? We do, yeah. So I'm literally two minutes away from the garden. So wow. Yeah, luckily the house doesn't overlook it, so you can forget a little about it. But yeah, <laughs> from the bathroom window, you've got a good view. <laughs> it's quite... Is this the first time you've been a sort of resident head gardener? I guess, yeah. I did live in France for a while, worked there as a head gardener, but the garden... I just did it so I could be in France for four years, really, yeah. How amazing. It was pretty good, yeah, which, it was which, fun. Which part of France were you in? I lived quite near to Versailles for a while, for a couple of years, and then I lived on the French-Belgian border, so in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a forest, in a very empty chateau, yeah. It was creepy, very creepy. I spent a bit of time with a couple of friends from Kew and we cleared, um, we got actually a forwarder in and we cleared all these conifers that were planted in the 70s and reopened the avenues. So this particular chateau, it had eight long avenues that went right out into the forest and off into the next town. And we reopened those and we did a little bit of kind of initial planting. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Was that straight out of Kew you were doing that? It was pretty much. I went back home to the Isle of Wight for a little while and then a lady approached my brother in London because he is a tree surgeon and asked him if he knew a gardener to come and work at her place in France and I was at a loose end so I thought why not? That sounds like fun. It's a pleasure to speak to you. You're the first Australian we've managed to get onto the podcast, which is very exciting. Oh, I'm a fake Australian, actually. I'm a New Zealander. So just across the Tasman Sea, I'm from southern New Zealand, a city called Dunedin, which is the Edinburgh of the south, which has the same street names as Edinburgh, but a lot less haggis. But I live in Brisbane, which is on the east coast of Australia, about halfway up that ginormous continent on the east coast. And it's a subtropical place, so it's a really interesting place to have a garden, let's just say that. Thank you so much for speaking at such short notice. Oh, honestly, Ben, it's an absolute pleasure. I love your podcast and I really enjoyed the garden log and I am loving Dear Gardener as well. So well done, you. Oh, I'm so pleased because it is quite daunting moving mm. across. And I love the garden log and I think I always will, but... I wasn't a head gardener, so it was hard to sustain that. <laughs> there are a lot of people who do miss it and wish, oh, why don't you just do the garden log? And it's, I can't, I can't do it forever. <laughs> I can't. No, and I, they have a, a lifespan, don't they? And I think it's, it's good to kind of have a, a, the end to a chapter. I agree. That's how I'm seeing it. I'm looking forward to going back to it in 40 years when I've forgotten what I ever did. <laughs> when you're head of the RHS. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's going to happen, but um, one day maybe. Talking of which, how did you come to be involved with the RHS? Entirely by accident, which is obviously the best way to get involved in anything. So I live about half an hour from Rosemore in beautiful North Devon. 
and I went to a talk with a friend about gardens and it finished a little bit early and I'd just taken up beekeeping about two years beforehand and so I said well look we've got some spare time let's go and have a look at the hives because I knew they had hives there and I couldn't find them so I just collared a member of staff and said where are the hives and she said oh the beekeeper's given up beekeeping so we're actually looking for somebody to uh, to put hives here and so my friend who is much more pushy than I am said oh Zara's a beekeeper The chateau was huge. It was finished not long before the French Revolution, but it predated that. There were some hunting lodges on the site and the alleys were put in when the chateau was put in. So you could stand in the centre of this chateau and it had a dance hall and the parquet flooring was just fabulous. It was all different, beautiful patterns. It was the finest example in Europe. And you could open all of the doors out through every single room and it would radiate out through the windows and out into the woods so you could open the doors to open up the views so she did that a few times for me but it made a real difference when we took the conifers down you could really see the alleys they were lost yeah how magnificent oh what an honor you did that garden by opening Mm. it up were you attracted to formal gardens before that because that sounds Uh, as formal as they come not really i'm quite quite a wild garden girl really the garden here at farringford is very wild it's carelessly ordered is our how we would describe it i'm more wild garden really yeah i think carelessly ordered is lovely worried about your garden freezing to death especially things like tomatoes you have to have a glass house whereas here what gets your plants is animals (laughs) and drought yeah we've got these possums and i've just planted something called a wind asparagus pea and i'm really excited about it and it was just starting to get going and something's just come along in the night and eaten it and i'm actually going to duck out with a torch after this and see if i can catch it coming back for seconds what is a wind asparagus pea it sounds very exotic to be honest, I don't know, because it's only got about two inches tall before, <laughs> so far, but it's some kind of climbing pea, and it has these weird-looking pods which have a really serrated kind of edge to them. doesn't sound very nice, but they taste asparagus when they're young. When you eat a, like a snow pea or something, you're just eating it for the pod, so you eat them like that. And then I think the leaves are also edible in salads, and finally, there's also a, an underground tuber, which is allegedly 30% protein and is quite yummy, and you can roast it. So I thought, this sounds like the best thing ever. I can't wait to try this. But unfortunately, this is the second time I've tried to grow it, and whatever it is that comes in the night is probably out there right now putting its cutlery out, but we'll go find out after. I went along for what I thought was going to be a chat about whether it'd be okay, and um and it was basically a chat about when when can you start when can you move your hives so i kind of moved my hives without any preparation at all um i didn't really mean to get involved in that at all but i love beekeeping i'm a total beekeeping nerd um (laughs) and so i put my hives over there and i've loved it it's a a strange place to have hives (laughs) the unique challenges of having the public noddling about the place absolutely and I didn't really think this through because (laughs) I didn't really have time to think it through I'm part of a a local club which is part of the British Beekeepers Association and in my club we teach beekeeping to novices and the first lesson we say is always think about where you're going to site your hive 
And all of the things that I've ever taught any novices went completely out of the window because we would say, don't put them near people, you know, nice access, this sort of thing. Yes, none of those boxes were ticked at all. <laughs> I don't think I've been to Rose Moore since 2017. Would they have been there then? Uh, probably just missed me. You might have seen the previous beekeeper's hives. So they're down by the vegetable garden, which is right at the end of Rosemore. So it's, it's kind of the last hurrah in Rosemore Garden. It's a beautiful spot, amazing vegetable garden, all very neat and tidy, an aspirational vegetable garden. And they're sort of between the vegetable garden and the orchard, which is ideal for bees. And they, they're kind of fenced off, but you can see through the fence. So I do like people to take a look at them when they're in the garden. Now we're on to it. Shall we talk mm. a little bit about Farring? Yeah, it's a walled garden, so it has a formal set of paths, but the planting is very loose, very wild. We allow things to self-seed. A lot of the planting's based on some old paintings by a Victorian artist, Helen Allingham, and she painted quite a few of Gertrude G. Eccles Gardens. You can imagine the kind of style, the kind of chocolate box, English cottage garden style. So that's what we're looking at Farringford. So people come in, they expect this formal walled garden and they open the gates and they come through and it's just this kind of wild and a little windswept at times. It's not sheltered at all. It's, yeah, regularly we get 90 mile an hour winds across the garden. We should explain where your garden is mm. to people listening and why you're yes. getting these winds. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, it's, on, it's kind of off the west coast of the Isle of Wight. We're very close to quite a big tourist attraction, I suppose, on the island, the Needles Lighthouse. And regularly they have quite horrific wind speeds recorded off of the needle and we're only over the hills away from the needles there's not much protection between us and the coast really you can't see the needles from here but the garden is on a slope so it looks down if you stood at the top you'd be able to see the rolling hills across towards that direction and there's very few houses there's a few houses in the distance but you can imagine it's pretty much as it was when Tennyson lived there. I finally managed to buy a house after years of struggle and and sacrifice I finally managed to buy a house and I was very much looking for something with a garden with some decent soil that I could grow all sorts of crops and I really wanted to have a food forest. I was loving this idea of permaculture, at least from a distance. I'm only at 28 metres above sea level and if you just go down another two, 10 metres or so, there's these acid sulphate soils, which would have been mangrove forests way back in ancient prehistoric times. So yeah, so you have to be really careful where you buy if you want to grow things. So acid sulphate soil is you expose it to air and it turns into sulfuric acid and <laughs> eat kills things but uh, yeah where I bought has good soil and it's got a maybe a 200 square-ish meter house on a 700 block so there's about 500 meters of gardenable opportunity and it had these massive jacaranda trees I'd never heard of one before I came to Australia but they're yeah Brazilian or Amazonian South American tree with yeah. beautiful big flowers and a big spreading crown I'm building 
what's called a dry rainforest out the back of full of natives. And having the jacarandas is great because they create this big canopy. So normally if you go to create a native rainforest or a dry rainforest, you have to plant these fast growing pioneer native species to create shade. And then you can put all these other things underneath. But fortunately, because of the way this was, uh, I was able to just go, just throw everything in and hope for the best. And it's all just growing like crazy now. We do have a sign saying that they're there, but they are behind a fence for safety reasons because they are, in the end, wild animals. And if they feel under threat, they will defend their hives. But people are very respectful and the fence is at a safe distance. But it does mean that I can't inspect my hives really when the garden is open. And so, yes, we, we had one incident when I first started when uh, the bees went a little bit crazy and people were running for cover. So we learned very quickly that um, it wasn't appropriate to open the hives when the, the garden was open. It does mean that uh, instead of do, opening my hives when other beekeepers would open their hives, so when the bees are all out flying, height of the day, beautiful summer day, I can't really do that because on a beautiful summer day, in the height of the day, so 12 o'clock, that's when the visitors are there. So I open my hives either very early in the morning or sort of after the garden's closed, so late at night, which is an odd time to do beekeeping. So you mentioned Tennyson, is the idea to have planting that is reflective of the planting it would have had in his time, in his yes. late Victorian high heyday? Reflective. We've used a bit of artistic license mainly because we're so exposed now. It used to be bordered by elms, and a lot of those were lost, obviously. So we don't have much of a windbreak, and a lot of the plants that you see in these Helen Allingham pictures are very difficult to grow on an exposed site. I must explain that we started the garden in 2017. It was a blank canvas, so there was nothing there. It was just a field. So you can imagine the difficulties with kind of 90 mile an hour winds every year, trying to get things established. A few years on now, five years actually, we've now got little areas in the garden where you can start to get things growing. We've got little microclimates now in the garden, whereas before it was just battered <laughs> by the wind every year. Originally it was going to be a food forest and then I met Kath, my partner, and she was very into Australian native plants and then that reawakened the botanist in me and then I thought I'm going to do a native habitat garden which provides food and nectar and places to nest and everything for whatever local wildlife is brave enough to find their way to this suburban wilderness surrounded by houses and streets. So I'm building this habitat garden out of dry rainforest native species. How native are we talking? Native to the continent, to the east coast, to your particular section of the east coast? Oh yeah, I'm glad you asked actually. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes. So what I did when I started was there's a whole lot of ecological revegetation groups around, volunteer groups and so on. There's one not too far away called Save Our Waterways Now, Sown. And they've got a picture of platypus. And they've got this native nursery where you can go buy native tube stock plants really cheaply. And they provide a suburb by suburb breakdown of what the native plants and trees and things that were that here that were surveyed before it was all cleared and turned into suburbs and well, before that it was farms in fact I'm, I think I'm sitting on an old chicken farm from back in the day which might explain why their soil's so good 
But yeah, so I started off with this list of these are the plants that grew in your area pre-European settlement. What are we talking about? 17 something or 18 something when it would have been cleared. And so that's great. So I started off with that list, but of course it actually wasn't a very massive list, but I've done a lot of surveying of remnant bush nearby. And I've got a friend who does a lot of it and he uploads all his observations of plants and a lot of it, animals and insects as well up to this iNaturalist app. And that is just the best because I can get on there and I can, I'll go to the native nursery and I'll see this tree I've never heard of before, a little baby tube stock tree. I think, what's this? And I jump on iNaturalist and I can see that it grows around Brisbane. And also there's historical records where you can look and see if somebody recorded something in 1825, it's in there, a little dot on the map. And you can go, oh, okay. I think this probably would have been quite possibly something that grew right here. And it's got a limited range, 200 kilometers north and south of where I am. So I'm smack in the middle of, right, I'll get this plant. So then the garden's just filling up with all of these native plants and partly to see what lives and what doesn't. And partly because I am I just want them all. <laughs> it's like the Pokemon. I did have a, an incident when I had to unite two hives. And the idea with uniting two hives is you want them all to be home so that you can unite the total two colonies together. And so that was a bit of a midnight experience. This was a, a case where I'd lost a queen in one of the hives and they'd gone a bit rogue. And of course, one of the particular things about keeping my bees where I keep my bees, it's not acceptable to have bees that are angry. So if they were in a normal field and I was a normal beekeeper without anybody watching, I would let them sort it out and maybe it wouldn't be so bad if they were a little bit tetchy. But when people are passing within 10 yards of the hive, they've got to be nice. So I was uniting them so that they could um, share the queen that was left. It was an experience. <laughs> what would have been the process if they were allowed to bring their own new queen up again naturally? Yes, that is really what they should be doing. But that would take some time. So it would take about three weeks, possibly even more. And so for that time, you're risking them being a bit tetchy. But they did have to lock off the, the vegetable garden. And to my utter shame, they put a big sign saying, angry bees, stay out. <laughs> and that sign shamed me for about a week. <laughs> have you been here since 2017? I have, yes. I actually started thinking about the garden while I was in my previous job. So I was teaching at a college near Guildford, Merristwood, and they approached me and asked if I wanted to help design and start up the garden. So I thought it was an opportunity I didn't want to miss. So yeah, I've been involved probably since about 2016 with the initial thoughts. Yeah. At the moment, it feels like we're finally just getting somewhere. So the garden is just starting to blossom and it's just starting to become quite popular. It's been very popular with local people who come in every week to watch the garden change over, over our open season. And we're getting people come from other parts of the country that have heard about the garden. So we're just starting to get known and starting to get more visitors it's quite lovely do you use any of Tennyson's poetry because he wrote quite a bit not explicitly mm. about flowers but he did mention them in quite a few we of do Maud Maud is quite a lovely one and he actually wrote that at Farringford but there's some some argument that it wasn't actually based on the gardens here 
but I have drawn quite a lot of inspiration from there because um, he mentions quite a lot of the planting. He mentions a passion flower at the garden gate and the lily that whispers and things like that. So it, it's actually Maud is one of my favourites, maybe. He's a bit morbid at times for me, but yeah, Maud is a lovely poem. He wrote about an oak and he wrote quite a lot about a cedar. And I wonder whether a lot of those poems where he mentions the cedar of Lebanon uh, it was based on the one outside his windows at Farringford. So there's quite an old one there that predates predates Tennyson living here. Edward Lear actually sketched that side of the house. So we've got quite a lot of ideas of what was happening around there, but not a great deal in the walled garden. We've got a few snippets from the spring by Helen Allingham. Allingham's pictures are of the garden. They are. There's a few actually of Farringford, Ward Garden, yeah, which maybe they're not her most famous works, but there are a few. And there's a couple of the cottage that's on the estate. So yes, she's painted the entrance of the Ward Garden a few times and then a few little views inside which if you just saw the painting you wouldn't have a clue where it yeah. was and it was a an ornamental garden in Tennyson's it time. was yes they did grow vegetables for the house but it was wild I get the impression from some of the diaries of his wife and also from some of the accounts of visitors that it was quite unkempt and quite wild and quite natural so there were vegetables but then there were also just as much kind of space put down to flowers they grew tobacco plants and castor oil plants that's documented apparently they grew them to six foot tall but i haven't managed that yet and now there's oh no, i can't be that many oh about 135 species on the property at the moment. And that wow. sounds like way too much considering that some of these things can get to 40 meters tall or 50 meters tall. So I, I can't let that happen. Or I don't know, I don't know if that's possible. But because you've got you've got things at the ground level, then you've got your trees and then your mid-story, your understory and vines. You could even have epiphytes and so on. So you can really cram things yeah. in and play around and see what you get. I'm thinking of actually doing a an arborist course with I've used to rock climb, but I thought I might learn to do an arborist course with the ropes and a harness and so on, and ultimately get up and keep these things from getting too high because it, you know, I've got some trees that would be massive if they get away. That's a great yeah. idea. But you'll end up there all the time tying on epiphytes and native orchids mm. and things. Well, that sounds like my ultimate dream. Thanks. That's a great idea. Yeah. I just need to retire from my job. <laughs> How did the into beekeeping begin? Well, again, by accident, I'd recently given up my job and I'd given myself a bit of a sabbatical to try and find other passions. And a friend of mine was going along on a weekend to a taster day. So that's a, a, just a day where you can learn the basics, really. And I said, oh, I've, I've got nothing to do. I'll come along with you. It was £10 for the day back then. And I went along. He hated it. I loved it. And so the rest is history. <laughs> so the idea was that he would get a hive and I would get a hive. The advice when you start is always to have two hives or at least access to two hives. And then if something goes wrong, like you lose your queen, you've got a queen in the other hive and you can do things. So it makes it a lot easier if you've got two rather than one. 
And so he was going to get a hive, I was going to get a hive, and we were going to keep them together to sort of keep down the expense. And then because he didn't like it, he gave me his hive. They then swarmed both hives within eight weeks of getting them and not really knowing what I was doing. That's probably why they swarmed. And so I ended up with four hives. It was a, a very steep learning curve, but I enjoyed every minute. Our association gives massive support to new beekeepers. So, um, and they're all bee nerds. So I was, I was coached by a bee nerd and it sort of rubbed off. <laughs> fascinated by your reading Tennyson's wife's letters and the letters from visitors. Do you have an archive on site or are you just heading out to the various archives across the country? We do have an archive on site. We had a historian who came and she did a lot of research for the house. So I was quite lucky that they passed a lot of that information on. There's quite a few books written locally about Tennyson and his works and Farringford itself. So yeah, there's a wealth of information really. But to a point, there is a wealth of information, but we're not like some of these other gardens, like Gravetie, who have got plans of exactly how it was laid out. We've got nothing like that. We've just got a few kind of snippets of poetry, some fanciful writing about how beautiful it was. And Tennyson wrote a letter to his friend and described it as this careless ordered garden on the ridge of a noble down. And it describes it beautifully, the feel. So we've got a lot of knowledge about how it would have felt, but we don't have the kind of black and white, that is exactly what is in the garden. I think that yeah. sounds the perfect way to garden, gardening it's, towards a feeling. We're lucky actually, we can be quite creative. How old is the dry rainforest now? I moved here in two, October 2016, and then I met Kath in 2018. Hmm. And that's when it started, really. And I started, I don't, after making a decision to go hardcore on the native habitat, I then dug a big pond. Well, big. I think it's about 2,000 litres. Oh, <laughs> and so cool. it's just, it's packed with native tadpoles and frogs at the moment, who sometimes make a heck of a racket, actually. But that's all part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So it's a good five years old. So it's getting to the stage now where you're pushing your way through the foliage. Are you, do you have paths mm. and things through it or are you just letting it? Yeah, it's just evolved organically. I tried to do a garden design at the start and it just seemed, it just didn't work for me. So what I did is I've just jammed plants in and then I figure I'm just going to let things go crazy and I'm just going to cut holes. <laughs> but those will be the paths. So that's uh, what I hope to do. That's amazing. A proper machete gardening approach <laughs> well uh, yeah when were your bees before the move to Rosemont? um i kept them in a friend's field and that was very nice actually they had um a lot of wild forage uh to to go at so it was all hedgerows and wildflowers and that sort of thing and they did really really well but the access was appalling it was it, it was very, very wet, very muddy, and it was like beekeeping on the Somme. It was, it was very difficult. So I was quite glad when um, I, I got some actual firm ground to keep them on, which is lovely. Did you notice a, a change in the honey that was produced moving sites? I did. There's definitely a different flavour to it. Rosemore is within sort of agricultural land, really. It's set within Torrington, which is a very small market town. And around it are all farms. And there is a farmer that likes occasionally to sow oilseed rape. 
and that gives a particular flavour to it. And again, at my other site, there was a, a quite a, a lot of oil seed rake up there as well. So that when that is part of your honey, that's a very distinctive flavour and it often takes over from other flavours. But that's not every year. So the flavour of the honey varies really from season to season. So spring honey is always different to autumn honey and depending on what's around for forage. So although they've got the beautiful garden of Rosemore, if there's oilseed rape next door in the farm, they'll go that way. <laughs> Do you know, the roses did so well this year. Last year was terrible. We've got a lot of old rose varieties. I've had people come and say, oh, well, um, Mottiston's roses are far better than yours, but um, that's the problem because ours only flower for a very short period of time. We've got a few moss roses and yeah, they are beautiful when they flower, but once they're over and this year they did so well. And those are roses that you're putting in rather than mm -hmm. inherited roses. Yes. Yeah. Everything's new. Yeah. A lot of people, they come to the garden and they think they see all this kind of, oh, it's Tennyson's garden. And they think it's an old garden and they come and it's quite in the, first few years it was quite flat and I think they were a bit disappointed in terms of what the, their expectations were but when you think it's five years old there was nothing it, it yeah it's quite special now it's getting there I'm out in the bush all the time seeing what things look like and that definitely does inspire the planting as well so I'll quite often go to the bush and I'll see some plant and I think oh that's such a beautiful plant and then it turns up at the nursery whoop so that's coming home and then <laughs> that's been really helpful as well seeing what grows together for example this is we've got quite a few native caper species which sounds delicious but they're very spiky nasty beasts these trees really the spikes you wouldn't believe it and so they've got Apparently yummy fruit, but I've never got to try them. This is a recurring theme with this bush tucker, as we call it. But I've got a couple of these native caper trees, and I know that there's a bird that comes and eats the caper fruit, probably called a caper bird for all I know. We'll call it that. And so you quite often see these native caper trees. And then underneath, there's a scrambling caper, which is a different species that scrambles along the ground. And what do you know? The scrambling caper tends to turn up underneath the caper tree because this caper bird is pooping out the seeds while it's eating a cape out of the tree and so you get them coming up in the same sort of together in the same kind of places it's just a, it's so I've so I definitely try to put things together like that as well if, if I'm used to seeing them that way tell me the difference between a spring and an autumn honey well I would say a spring honey has a very very light floral flavor generally where I am and somebody else's spring honey might be totally different then because they might go onto the spring trees or whatever, and that can be quite dark. Generally, the lighter in colour, the generally the lighter flavour I find in my honey. And also my spring honey is definitely, if the oilseed rape isn't around, it's definitely a more runny consistency as well. The autumn honey tends to be a little more set and also a little bit richer in flavour as well, a little bit deeper in flavour. But that's just my honey. And one of the nice things about belonging to an association and also uh, doing my beekeeping at Rosemore is that Rosemore put on flower shows and the association has a stall there. And we invite all our members who produce honey to bring their honey because we're, we're all hobbyists. We don't do this commercially at all. And we all only have a little bit of honey. So we'd never be able to fill a shop or anything like that. And we all put our honey together 
and you can see the difference in the colours and when we have the autumn show, it's an indoor show, so we can open honey jars and we have a taster section. So you can come and you can taste all the different honeys from all over and they all have a little bit of a write-up as to where they come from. So it's, it's a case of taste it and see. of the current owner that the garden be scented. I forget about that because we're working in it all the time. We don't really notice it. But in the summer, quite a lot of visitors, you can hear them when they come through the door. They say, oh, the, the per perfume from all the flowers take their breath away. It's quite special when you hear the visitors gasping and coming in and, and yeah, just amazed by the smells. Yeah, the old roses, the scent from them is just divine. They are really, really special. And we grow quite a lot of Nicotiana, which maybe is more heavily scented in the evening. And early in the season, we have a lot of scented stock, which really does. The smell is strange because they're all at the top of the garden, but everybody smells it when they come through the gate at the bottom. So the smell kind of sinks and gets trapped at the bottom of the hill. If I go walking around, I'll see rose bushes and goodness knows what else that people are growing. And all, and coffee, I've, oh, I forgot to mention, I'm growing coffee and there's lots of coffee babies coming up in my garden now because that's an essentially invasive tree and I feel mildly bad about it, but great about the coffee, yeah. Do you get a harvest from the coffee? Oh, yeah. So I think I've got about 10 coffee trees. The tallest is well over my height now. I need to clip it. And I think... I got something like 12 kilos of berries at the last harvest. You get two harvests a year. And then you have to divide that by 10 to get the weight of uh, dry roasted coffee you're going to end up at the end. So I probably spent two hours, two and a half hours picking all that. And then there's a lot of time processing it, which I've partly automated. <laughs> and are you growing Arabica or are you growing the, what's the other species that you? Oh, Robusta. Yeah. Rob I've never tasted robusta coffee taking a dried bean and making a coffee out of it no i went into the local botanic gardens and they happened to have these coffee trees that had been grown in brisbane for a very long time and they had all these babies underneath them so i and they were going to get just molten and composted so i rescued them and brought them home and it's it's an arabica and it's a variety from brazil called i get this wrong i think it's mundo nova or okay uh, New World. it's the most common yeah yeah it's the most common coffee growing in Brazil and it's a nice kind of mid-range nice smooth drink it's really good yeah excellent because Australia is now the coffee capital of the world from what I understand not for oh, in terms of drinking for consumption yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so the production's picking up but yeah now we're crazy about our coffee I've got a coffee machine I used to be a barista and yeah we I make cafe quality coffee here and love it just absolutely love it you're quite close to sea level for coffee production does that affect you at all? Yeah, I thought maybe this coffee would be crappy. And if it's crappy, I'll pull the trees out and put natives in or whatever, or grow something else. And anyway, so I did a lot of research on how to process and how to roast. And so I did all that and out came this delicious coffee, cafe grade, beautiful stuff. It's better than what I can buy in the supermarket with the fancy beans. So I thought, wow, this is a bit strange, isn't it? 28 meters. I thought this stuff had to be up high. So I don't know whether maybe I've got a lowland variety or something. spring storm and then we might get one in June if we're really unlucky 
Oh no, yeah, a June so, storm in yeah, a garden full of awful. old roses. It's not good. Actually, funnily enough, when we closed this year, the garden was looking absolutely fabulous. We've got also quite a lot of salvias, quite modern salvias, and they were just looking stunning. And the visitors were all, the regular visitors were complaining that we were going to close. And literally Halloween must have been two days after we closed we had a storm and the whole of the garden I came in the next day it was all just brown <laughs> apart from a couple of little pockets so it was quite good timing really otherwise I might have been quite upset but yeah it was looking like kind of midsummer still in the garden but yeah that was over quite quickly <laughs> Yes, it's quite mm. nice of nature to snap its fingers and say, it right. is. <laughs> it's such a wonderful compliment to you that you're mm. getting regular visitors. The fact that you can say you have regular visitors mm. and not only that, but regular visitors who are there for the plants. Yeah, we're now at that turning point with the garden that is becoming worth seeing. People see these instant gardens and it's all very well doing an instant garden, but uh, on the site we've got, it's impossible unless you could build a a huge windbreak yeah so it's uh, I concentrate a lot on the wind don't I but <laughs> it's one of our biggest issues one of our biggest battles no, but, that, yeah that's what makes talking to each garden interesting because mm. there is a dominant concern in all the gardens <laughs> you have lots actually you have the wind yeah. as well but also the historical aspect mm. and things like that it's great I really really <laughs> like hearing it mm. but what's your what's your sort of team like do you have you have people oh. working with you We've got quite a small team. So it started off my husband and I. I left my teaching job and he left his job at Wisley to come here. We started in February and the weather was quite stormy and wet. And all we had was a spade and a little broken wheelbarrow <laughs> when we started. And this huge field that we needed to dig over. And that was basically it for quite some time. <laughs> It was just the two of us for a little while. There are other estate workers who cut the grass and keep the hedges cut. We had a couple of contractors in that dug over the ground with diggers because it was so huge. And then we both planted all of the plants in those two long borders ourselves. And they're almost 100 metres long. I don't actually get to eat a lot of my own honey. <laughs> Because I give it away to friends and family um, and I don't take a huge amount off the hives. I like to keep enough for the bees to, to use themselves. And so I only, I really err on the side of caution and only take really what I'm absolutely sure they don't need. So I don't eat a huge amount of my own honey. I get given a lot of honey, so I eat other people's honey, but there's nothing like your own honey. Um, it Mine tastes the best. I'm just assuming that you are... Um driven by the honey but of course you're not you're you're more into the fun the science the, the, all the rest of the, the thing absolutely I, I thought when I started it was I was going to be so excited to get loads of honey and in actual fact that's the bit that is lovely but it's very much a byproduct of why I do my beekeeping they are just incredibly fascinating as a social insect and I just find them allowing me into their hive to take part in their world is, is incredible. It is really a, a revelation and it, they don't sting me that much and the stings are a small price to pay for being involved. And I do see it very much as it's their hive and I'm a guest and it is a huge privilege. I, I absolutely love it. And 
they they are fascinating. Do you have a favourite part in the in the life cycle of a hive or the the cycle of the year that you're excited about? I've got a bit that I don't like. <laughs> so I'm I'm not fond of the autumn inspections, getting them ready for winter. Um, they tend to be super tetchy. They know what they're doing. They don't need my help. And also I found, and I think other beekeepers have said this, when you get a sting in the autumn, it is so much more powerful than a sting in, in the spring. And I'm sure there's a scientific reason for that, but I don't know it. I just know anecdotally and from my own experience that that's the case. But I love that first inspection in spring. When you're, as a beekeeper, you're itching to know what's gone on. You're itching to know that they've got through the winter and then you open it up and they're all there. They're perfectly happy. They've done their own thing. You didn't need to worry. And they just welcome you back in. And bees are very happy in spring. They're just going about their business. So, yeah, I love that bit. What have you managed to see so far in the garden in terms of wildlife? Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. What I did want to talk about tonight, actually, was a recent addition to the garden. Listeners will have to google this one but there's a, a creature a fearsome creature here called a bush turkey it also gets called a brush turkey or a scrub turkey which are the different names we have for the bush here but if you type up australian bush turkey you'll soon see a picture of this reviled creature it's actually related to chickens and quails and that it has these big feet and it scratches the ground to see what it can find it's got huge feet actually and really powerful back legs and it's got a black plumage like a priest's robe or something but then it then the males have this bizarre kind of big wattle coming out the front like it's all yellow and red and it's really quite fabulous looking it's a beautiful sight but and then He's got this bare neck and bare head like a vulture. So he's got this bright red neck, bright red head with no feathers on it. This big, crazy colored waffle. And then this drab black, everything else. <laughs> and these giant feet. And he's arrived in the garden recently because it turns out that it's bush turkey breeding season. They're reviled because what they do is they build these gigantic mounds of just leaves and whatever it can find to make a big compost pile, which sounds wonderful if you want some compost. Like a crocodile, they put their eggs into a sort of a composting mound of stuff and that keeps the eggs at a certain temperature. And the bush turkey has temperature sensors in his beak and he aims for exactly 33 degrees and lady bush turkey turns up in the morning they mate he digs a hole she sits in it lays the eggs in the hole in the compost heap and then he sends her off and then he fills in the hole with his giant feet and fills it all up again and then the eggs stay in there at 33 degrees and if it gets too hot he uncovers it a bit and it is good but what they do is you'll I've put mulch all over my garden <laughs> and he's gone around and he's just scraping it all back towards his big mound that he's building and he's blocked the creek a few times and then the water comes out of the whole system and then he chases the chickens and wants to mate with them, which isn't ideal either. We won't go into that in any great detail, but I thought I was so clever. I got this arborist to drop off all these wood chips from just down the street with <laughs> You can see where the story's going. Like this six to six to eight cubic meters of wood chips, huge pile. I thought, this is great. I'm going to make so much compost out of this. And what I don't compost, I'll use as mulch on the garden to keep the moisture in for the plants. And I had this huge pile next to the house, composting away, mushrooms coming up, all systems go. And then one day, George, the bush turkey, turned up and took one look at this giant mound of compost and thought, hallelujah, it's Christmas time. And 
I worked right up until about three days before I gave birth. Uh, so we were both off for a short time. It was spring. We employed another gardener at that point. Yeah. And then I spent my maternity leave just coming in every day and telling everyone where to plant things and what to do. <laughs> Uh, with a small baby so it's been pretty much the two of us but now we have I'm about I'm four days a week but probably more like seven but with a child in tow um, my husband is five days a week and then we have two others that are part-time that help out purely in the garden and we have two estate workers that do all the grass cutting so we're just worrying about the borders and the trees um, we have a small group of volunteers as well that come on a Thursday that have all at various points come in and pleaded to come and work in the garden with us, which is quite nice. I shouldn't say pleaded, asked, yeah, <laughs> to come and work with us. Uh, and uh, they're such a lovely bunch and really keen and all live very locally. Yeah, so we're quite lucky. They will fly on a warm day and of course there are winter flowers as gardeners we all talk about flowers throughout the year and what have you my bees absolutely go crackers for the hellebores at Rosemore I gave a talk at Rosemore and they said would you take them around the garden in the height of summer and find the bees and show them what they're they're foraging on well of course they'd gone far and wide in the summer they've got all that lovely long day to fly out and come back as far as they would like and do you think I could find a honeybee it was very difficult and in the winter, it's very easy. They don't go far from their hive. They want something close at hand. And the hellebores are usually covered in honeybees. So if anyone wants to see bees, the best time to do that is on a warm winter day and go and look for the hellebores and snowdrops and you'll find honeybees there. What a good tip. That's a really good tip. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just crazy. He's the stupidest bird I've ever met in my life. And... He's so stupid that I like him. <laughs> he's like, you know, but uh, <laughs> he's, I just can't stop him from making it bigger. I've got other mulch piles elsewhere in the garden and he's, he'll go 15 meters away and start dragging mulch, flicking it back with his feet and bringing it back to the pile. And I'm like, come on, George, it's already must be seven cubic meters. You've got eggs in there you've got enough to feed an army of with omelette there's just so much in there georgina's there every morning laying more it's just stop you've got enough it's bigger than the volume of it's about two cars volume or something at least and it's just getting bigger and i don't know where he gets it all from the bad news is that apparently he's going to keep doing this till february when the last of the chicks have come out so the chicks hatch inside this big pile of compost and then they unhelped dig their way out which can be as much as a meter or more up to the top of the mound and then dad spots them and flicks compost at them to drive them off which is the worst parenting i've ever heard of quite frankly but yeah they don't have anything to do with their children and the children don't have anything to do with dad and they just within a few hours they can fly these are incredible creatures i've i've seen a couple of these baby bush turkeys a couple of times and they are hilarious They're, if you could be more ugly and more adorable than the bird I've just described. The baby bush turkey is probably it. They're just a floof of feathers with a neck sticking out, really. We spent quite a lot of time in lockdown because I obviously had a year 
and my daughter was about a year old. I'd only just gone back to work really and spent quite a lot of time with her on a blanket or sleeping in a pram while we were tending the borders and planting things and just ticking it over really while it was closed. It was quite strange. Um, yeah, so it got to a point where my daughter wouldn't sleep anywhere in a bed or at indoors she likes sleeping in her pram outside uh, yeah so and I used to put her in her high chair while I was propagating in the greenhouse and she'd just muck about with soil and bits of plants it was an idyllic lockdown really in comparison to to what other people went through I can certainly say that every time I go on holiday now I'm looking for the local beekeeper so no holiday is, is a proper holiday unless I meet up with a local beekeeper. Fantastic. <laughs> but they are hard to find and, and my language still is not great. So it's a mixed thing. <laughs> you do a lot of bee impressions and waving. Yeah. So Pointing. Yeah. Me, I'm a, you're a bee, <laughs> I'm a beekeeper. That sounds very enjoyable. It's, it's incredible. Really. There's so many different ways to beekeep. And even within the UK, people keep different sorts of hives. I keep fairly basic hives, mine are nationals. And that's, a, that's one that I learned on and I feel comfortable with. But there's all sorts of different hives out there. And there's no right way or wrong way. So long as you work with the bees, you're not doing anything wrong. Do you find that bees react differently to different people? Yes, definitely. And, and I think the difference is the approach that they have to the hive so I always say when I'm teaching people when you approach a hive and you're dealing with a, a colony it's a bit like a tai chi mindset you have to slow careful movements almost slow motion and some people just don't get that they're keen to get in and you know the boxes are banged down on the floor and, and you soon learn not to do that because the bees will let you know that they don't think that's great Slow, steady movements is the way to get alongside bees. You are actually going into their house and taking the roof off and then moving the walls and taking their food. So slow, steady movements is the way to, to really get alongside bees. I probably should let you get on. Are you gardening today? I am, yes, it should be. <laughs> what, what's on the cards for this early December? Well, we're frantically getting in our last tulips, which is possibly a bit late but you know that's sometimes what happens and then we've got we're just trying to rejig some of the borders and take out some things like cardoons that have taken over they've got too big so we're splitting them and moving them and a little bit of tweaking this time of year it's busy that's why I should really let you get yeah. so I will say goodbye but okay. thank you so much for talking and I'd like to talk again at some point in six months or so you'll be just as busy then I know but I'll pry you away for another, yeah. another chat <laughs> okay it was really lovely to talk to you and I hope to see the garden in myself yeah, please do when we're, um, when we're next over yeah I love well it's nice to be able to share about the garden because it really isn't very well known and I do feel like Hopefully it's it will become one of those places that everyone wants to visit on the island. It sounds like <laughs> it's going to be. I mean, it sounds like mm. you've got a brilliant space. You've got a brilliant story. You've mm. obviously got a talented you and your husband 
talented team and your volunteer mm. team and everyone else. So it sounds like it's got all of the things going for it. Is there a website and things that I can put on the descriptions and things like that? There is, yes. Yeah. Farringford okay. have their own website. Okay. Yeah. I'll put that on the um Oh, there's so the much on there. If you're interested in in the Helen Allingham's and the letters, there is a wealth of information on, on the website. Basically, whatever they found historically, they just whacked it on the website. So you could get lost on there for hours reading about Tennyson and Farringford and all sorts. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that's winter sorted then. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much for talking. Well, lovely and, to um, meet you. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy your time in the garden this afternoon and have a wonderful Christmas. Yes, you too. Hopefully okay. we'll see you in the summer. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love <laughs> okay. that. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, if you want to have another call, there's actually a whole lot of other stuff about how the garden has been planted with host insects and birds in mind. And there's big lists of stuff. And yeah, there's a bit of stuff in there to unpack one day. I'd love yeah. to. I'd really love to. It's been fascinating. It's really good. That's the wine. <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to listen back to this to re remember what you said then yeah that's probably true yeah it's been great talking to you too ben and actually i'm probably one of the few people on the planet that doesn't hasn't really listened to a podcast before so i think yours was the first one i listened to when you got in contact so i was like oh yeah they're oh, they, they, they still do podcasts and i clicked on it and it was great so i think i might have missed out on 20 years of great podcasts from around the world by not actually clicking and finding out what they were so don't worry patrick this is the first good one in 20 years honestly no there are there, there are some great gardening great gardening podcasts great there's probably some great australian ones i'll have to find i'll have to dig into them look if you want someone else to interview i know a botanist who's got many a story of the things that he's found weird and wonderful new species and things and amazing guy so if okay. you need another person I will do. I definitely will do. Once this is out, you can show him and then give me his details and I'll <laughs> start bothering him like I bothered you. Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. It's been really fun. I'm going to get another wine. And, yeah. Oh, good, good idea. I'm going to go and still cups of tea for me, I'm afraid. Still before midday. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, right. Patrick. Bye-bye. 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 Maybe see you down at Rosemont. That would be great. Definitely. Well, my house would be delighted to have you as a guest. <laughs> and I promise they won't sting you. <laughs> thank you. I very much appreciate that. Really, really, thank you so much for talking, Zara. I'm going to let you get on. And, ben, um... thank you so much for asking me to do this. I, it's honestly, it's a huge pleasure and privilege. And, uh, you know, I just love everything that you do. I think you do it with such elegance. It's just wonderful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Gosh, well, I hope that doesn't fail in this episode. I hope that I keep it up for at least <laughs> at least two well, more you, weeks. You... There's certainly no suggestion that you sit under a duvet cover. <laughs> that certainly doesn't come across. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Trade secrets. I keep thinking... I'm sworn to secrecy. I should put a duvet cover on there at least. That's the, um, <laughs> that's the next thing. Something flowery. <laughs> something, something floral, something to attract the bees. Yeah. Anyway. Well, Zara, thank you so much. And we'll speak Thanks again so soon, I hope. Yeah, lovely. Thank, thank you. you. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Dear Gardener. I really, really enjoyed this one. I think the, the guests worked perfectly together. The subjects were fascinating. It was all stuff that I knew nothing about, which is what I really like to listen to. I'm very envious of all the gardeners today for a, a variety of reasons. I particularly 
adore Ellen's brief, gardening not to a historic plan, but to a historic feeling. How utterly fantastic. An excuse to ensconce yourself in diaries, letters and poems, and then create the most wonderful images and landscapes. I really think that Farringford sounds worth a visit. And I know that Rosemore is worth a visit, because I've been there. I haven't been since 2017, but I'm definitely going to take Zara up on her offer of visiting the hives down there. Gardens are always lovely places to be, but there is something special about being there with a purpose. And I think that Zara has a wonderful role within the gardens, being able to wander through on her way to the important job of keeping the bees. And finally, I am so envious of Patrick's obvious ability to delight in every aspect of his gardens, even those that are obviously frustrating, such as battling with George the Bush Turkey, who I'll put a picture of. I've been sent a picture of him. I'll put a picture of him up on the various social medias. Speaking of which, you can find me on Twitter at at Ben's Garden. You can find me on Instagram. I changed this one recently at the Ben Dark. And of course, of course, you can buy my book, The Grove, A Nature Odyssey in 19 and a Half Front Gardens. I was very pleased to see it feature in the Sunday Times Culture magazine list of books of the year this year. And it's been in the Irish Times books of the year and the RHS top book of the year. So it's all going quite well for that. But um, I do suggest that anyone still desperately looking for a, a Christmas present, they might want to find The Grove. <laughs> Go go and have a look. It does feature Tennyson, actually. And bees. No bush turkeys, sadly. That's the sequel. Anyway, thank you very much, and I'll see you back here in a fortnight. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming to the garden ward For the black but night has flown Coming to the garden ward I am here at the gate alone I am here at the gate alone and the woodbine spices are wafted abroad and the mask of the rose is blown for a brief